Christian Gospel with Dr. Halissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. So looking at angelic majesties, whether... You know, we feel like they're taking a personal interest in us, like a guardian angel, or whether we're looking at an angelic majesty that has been appointed to a whole nation, a whole kingdom, a whole realm, a whole people group. There's a you know a huge range, but they're the thing to remember about them is they're all created beings. They're all under authority, even even if we were talking about a demon, the dev even the demons have to obey. Even the demons tremble. They have to obey the proper authority. Sometimes we're we're running around casting out demons without the proper authority. And again, you know, are we actually casting out a demon or are we reviling an angelic majesty that has been dispatched upon a mission to stop us, divert us, advise us or whatever, like we see particular people in scripture, like Bilam. He saw the angel as an adversary, but, you know, the, the angel could have saved his life if he had really listened to what the angel was saying. You know, if we ignore the father, chances are we'll probably ignore an angel too, if he sends a mission. But, but he got the second chance there. He was the one who chose to ignore and to go back and to say, well, okay, maybe I can't curse Israel, but I can always, you know, go back and teach them how to get Israel to bring the curse on themselves. When we're talking about this particular realm, we want to be careful that we're not reviling angelic majesties and that we're not trying to jump into their realm and order them around when we are not their authority. There are specific methods. There are specific patterns that we can follow if we feel like, uh, you know, an entity without authority has inserted itself into some realm of our lives. We have a pattern for that, but we have to always understand it's it's the power of the name. You know, like <laughs> the pattern was the Lord rebuke you right? It's don't overestimate the power and the authority that you have in Yeshua, because you really need to look at your own life and say, am I really walking under the authority of that name? If I'm rebelling against the authority of that name, don't you think a demon would know it? They're pretty perceptive when it comes to things like that. So we're going to be very, very, very careful as we talk about these angelic majesties. But I did want to bring in some things from the Torah text this week from Va'echanan, which is the Torah portion this week. I want to bring in a couple things from there where you can go back and say, hey, wow, that really was in the Torah. There's there's some hints that are given in the Torah that the sages have incorporated into their understanding of how these angelic majesties work and how they derive certain conclusions that they have come to concerning angelic majesties. So let's review just a little bit. Let's go back to our working text. And our working text, of course, is still the Song of Songs, uh, chapter 3, verse 6. And it's a question. Who is this coming up from the wilderness, like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the scented powders of the merchant? And these, this last item, this last appearance, because this, this congregation of Israel, as they are coming up from the wilderness, it's the end of their journey, whether we're talking about in the past, the wilderness journey of the past, or whether we're talking about this wilderness journey that we are in, that I believe is soon going to see the end of its exile, that soon it's going to be able to cross over into its inheritance in the land. Our generation, maybe the next generation, maybe, but I do think it's close. I do think the dawn is breaking. And so there's there's three ways of describing the appearance of Israel as they ascend up out of the wilderness. They they have the appearance of columns of smoke. And we went over some of that. Like, what does that mean? Well, these columns of smoke, we looked at different types, not the least of which was the sacrificial altar, which never went out, even when they were moving it around. Even when they were journeying with the sacrificial altar, the fire never went out. So even though they had a cloth over it to protect it in the journey, it still would have been smoking. You've got the incense altar. You've got the pillar of fire, the pillar of smoke or the pillar of cloud. You, as the as the Israelites encamp, as they settle down, 
the the water from the rock would gush out like a river and according to tradition it would surround each of the separate tribal camps so that it not only set the boundaries of one tribe against another but it also made it much easier to go draw water rather than hiking you know a few miles to go get you know to the rock itself to pull the water out instead the water came to them and that's the way it's described in the garden of eden that the rivers gave drink they gave drink to the whole garden. That's what Yeshua said at Sukkot when he stood up and said, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. He's like, I will give you drink. I will I will bring the water to you. If you will encamp according to the instructions, according to the leading of the Holy Spirit, then the water will come to you. So it was from these columns of smoke, if you'll remember, that the nations looking on, they said, this is how they grew to be so terrified. It wasn't just the crossing of the Reed Sea that terrified them and the destruction of Pharaoh's army and the plagues. It was how they encamped in the wilderness that was so terrifying to the nations. Because remember, they're at a they're on the ancient spice route. They're on an ancient caravan route out here in this wilderness. So they're going to be observed, even if only from afar. Uh, possibly they were doing some trading themselves, you know, with the caravans as they went through. But because we're talking about this ancient spice route, uh, you're most of you are familiar with Petra. Petra was one of the posts. It was one of the caravanserais. A caravanserai is a place, they're, they're spaced a day's journey apart, and they would have uh, stone fences. They would have camel and donkey food. They would have human food. But these would be safe places where the caravans could stop for the night. And if they needed to trade in a camel, maybe they had a, a camel that was foot sore then they could trade camels and give some boot money or whatever and get a fresh camel for the next leg of the journey. And so a caravanserai, you can find these if you do a little archaeological reading. You can see how these caravanserais were spaced out on this ancient space route space route, spice route. I might have been a space route too. I don't know. <laughs> I guess with the, the Israelites camping out there, the 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 peoples looking on thought it was absolutely a, a space route because they confused them with ministers of fire. They confused them with angelic beings. They thought that somehow they had been uh, transformed into angelic beings, you know, because you've got the, the fire on the mountain at Mount Sinai, you've got the thunder, you got the lightning, you got the smoke, and then you've got the Mishkan, the tabernacle itself, as it's moving and journeying through the wilderness, it's going to look like everything these people do is accompanied by fire. And so they, they say the nations looking on were terrified by their journeying in the wilderness because they observed all this work of fire, not just the other miracles that accompanied them. So the idea of putting them literally on this ancient spice route, you're going to have lots of people moving through those caravanserais who do have powers of observation, and they're going to be able to go back and forth and to report what they have seen of Israel in the wilderness. They, they are being observed. And so I'm sure as the stories were told, like as with any caravanserai or with any traveling group of people, in order to embellish the campfire stories a little bit um, and make them more entertaining, I'm sure they added some stuff, <laughs> you know, and misperception, maybe, you know, watching the Ministry of Fire from all these fire sources in the camp and yet misunderstanding that, oh, my goodness, these are angelic beings. They weren't. They were human beings, but they were ministers of fire in a sense in the wilderness, like an angel. And so on this ancient spice route, they're acquiring in the eyes of the nations this, this terrifying appearance. And so using the phrase, with all the scented powders of the merchant, it helps to place you right where they are geographically as Israel was moving. But remember the scented powders of the merchant, the, the merchants of the caravanserais, uh, caravans would have been very familiar with the scented powders of the merchant, um, because this is the dust. This is the avaka, avaka in Hebrew, the scented powders. It's another word for dust. So it's a scented dust. It's a spice. 
And it goes back again to the variety of the tribes. When you see the word merchant, it can have symbolism that applies to to different things. But in this particular case, the idea is that they have been, they are bringing in goods from faraway places. Remember the mixed multitude that went up with them? You can see in Egypt, they were exposed to all kinds of influences. A lot of it bad, yes. But the cool thing is that we know that later the tribes were dispersed all around the world. When they are brought home, again, they will come up with all the scented powders of the merchant. They will be perfumed and spiced, not just by their holiness and purity and sacrificial lives. They have been influencers in the nations where they have been scattered. And so, you know, their skin tone might be a little bit different when they come home than when they left. Their hair color might be a little bit different when they come home. Their eye colors might be a little bit different. Their their songs, their music, it might have a little bit different sound to it. So the idea of a merchant is like the Proverbs 31 woman, that um, she brings her food from afar. And so they say that's kind of like, you know, as the students of the Torah come home, they're influenced by the very geography of the places where they've been scattered because there's object lessons you can learn as you study the word, maybe in the shadow of the Rocky Mountains. Uh, it, it might provide some insights to you into the Torah. It might inspire some insights. Maybe the glaciers of Alaska or the glaciers of Canada might provide some influence and inspiration as you're studying the Torah, as you hit certain passages. Um you know, if you're you're studying in a desert place, of course, a lot of this stuff is going to make sense. If you're in the deep forest, uh, maybe of Europe, there's going to be some things that are going to kind of spice up your, your tourist study. And so you're going to bring in the good influences of the nations where you've been scattered, not the bad ones, not the unclean, not the unholy, the impure, but it will shape you in a beautiful way. The, the diversity of the places from which uh, we're going to be gathered is going to be part of these scented powders of the merchants. Just like the tribes themselves, they were very different. I don't, you know, if you read in the Chronicles, the Kings, the Judges, you can see that the different tribes, they had different, I wouldn't say personalities, but they def- definitely were different people groups. And they didn't always get along because of that. Sometimes they did. They had certain personalities that did go together. But you can see even tribes back then, they were like the scented powders of the merchant, different spices, different kinds. And so this characterizes Israel coming up from the wilderness to cross over the Jordan into their inheritance. And so we've been dealing with this abaca because remember, they're taking from this, they say that the basically the impetus for Israel to be able to make this journey. And even to complete this journey, to actually go up to their inheritance, that um, this is a result of the dust of Jacob. When Jacob struggled all night long with the angel, and he prevailed, not because he beat up the angel. He didn't. There's nothing in the text that makes you think he beat up an angel. That's why we have to be really careful how we talk about angelic majesties. He didn't beat up an angel. He won because he didn't give up, because he wouldn't let go. So when you feel like you're in a huge spiritual battle, don't feel like you have to beat something up in order to win. You just have to not give up until the daybreak. You just have to hang on to the end. That's how you prevail in a spiritual battle. It's by not letting go. And so they say that in this wrestling match, which in Hebrew is avak, Jacob had with these um with the angel that's that kicked up a dust called avaka what here in the song of songs is, is the scented powders of the merchant they say the holy one took that dust and he stored it under his throne um it's also interesting that they say that the sukkot of glory or the clouds of glory that the Israelites traveled in in the wilderness 
that those clouds of glory were also taken from the throne. From the very throne of Adonai, he sent clouds. And it was those clouds that protected them from the serpents and the scorpions and so forth, as long as they were obedient and not complaining. Those clouds would protect them, and they literally became a great cloud of witnesses to the salvation of Adonai, to the commandments of Adonai, to the covenant of Adonai. They became a great cloud of witnesses. So this is part of what is seeing coming up from the wilderness, a great cloud of witnesses with all the scented powders of the merchant, the dust of Jacob. And so the dust of Jacob, it, they're saying he won the right by prevailing in this match with the angel to place the unique blessings upon each of the 12 sons. You put all those blessings together, and this is these are the blessings of the house of Israel. And the, one thing to remember, too, is even though a particular blessing might be applied to a particular tribe, the understanding is it was not peculiar to that tribe that each of the sons of Jacob had all of these blessings upon him. Nevertheless, there would be one particular blessing that that was more apparent, that was more concentrated within that particular tribe. And so the in the diversity of blessings, you put them together is, yes, it's one house, one huge blessing, but because each tribe had a unique quality about it, it creates these scented powders, the avaca of the merchant. And so, um, we could even say that the blessings that were placed upon the tribes, if, if that dust was placed under the throne, and then later as Jacob blesses his sons, there's kind of a, wow, this is dust that's been literally under the throne of the Most High. And therefore, Jacob's prevailing in the battle, his not giving up in that battle with the angel all night long during the whole exile. They now are encouraged knowing that they too have the ability to prevail. Um, and, and it's, you know, in recounting these successes of the past, you know, of Abraham and Sarah, of Isaac and Rebecca, of Jacob and Leah and Rachel, recounting these instances in the past where it looked like all was lost, but they prevailed because they just hung in there. They just wouldn't give up. I, you know, just, I refuse to give up. I'm not saying I'm strong. I'm not saying I'm mighty. I'm just saying he is. My job is to not give up and just let him be mighty. My job is to not give up and let him be strong. And so um, those blessings can work through us if we allow him to help us in that manner. Okay, so we've reviewed that. And I think in the last lesson, we talked about how do you, why do they keep asking angels what their name is? The idea is that the angel will bear some aspect of Adonai himself, because we know Adonai goes by many names. And each of those names reflects some part of his character. Uh, some attributes of him. So like um, Gabriel, the strength of El, it's similar to El Gibor, one of the names of Adonai. Um, the, the angel that appears to Manoach and his wife, he says, it's, why are you asking my name? Seeing it's, it's Pele. Well, that's another name of Adonai. It means wonderful and miraculous. And he actually does miraculous things. Um, so you can see that, when an angel is dispatched, there is some aspect of the Holy One that is placed upon him in order to perform that task. And so the appropriate name will be put on that angel to match the appropriate task. Now, in the case of Daniel, we saw it took two angels, that it took uh, not just Gabriel, which is the strength of El, to fight against the prince of Persia. It also took Michael. And Michael is um, 
It means who is like El. In other words, there is none above him. There is only him. He is the only creator. He is the only El. Uh, he's the ultimate authority. There's no authority over him. And this is the attribute of Adonai that was needed to break through the Prince of Persia because he wasn't responding to just strength. He's meeting strength with strength. But then when Michael comes, it's like a reminder. Hey, Prince of Persia, you're just a created being. You've been appointed by Elohim. He set you up. He'll take you down. And with that reminder, then Gabriel is able to break through the resistance of the Prince of Persia because who, which created being can stand against the creator? Can't. That's the whole idea. And so that, that made it a, a wonderful um, correlation between Michael, the angel Michael, who was like El, uh, because we saw in Daniel 12, 1 through 2, that Michael is like the great guardian angel of Israel itself. And when Michael or Michael arises, then Israel too will arise. And uh, it prophesies that if we're found written in the book, we're going to be rescued. We're going to be resurrected to everlasting life. And that is just so cool. And then we read another passage, which we know, uh, who is like you, Michamocha, uh, who is like you among the gods award, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders. There is none other than him. But in his children, he puts that attribute of awesomeness upon his children. In other words, there is no other nation that will be like his nation, Israel. Deuteronomy 33, 29 says, blessed are you, Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help, and he who is the sword of your majesty. So your enemies will cringe before you and you will trample on their high places. So it's our name is like his name. Who is like you? Michamocha, uh, where we get Michael, the angel Michael. But blessed are you, Israel, who is like you. And so he's saying, I have put an attribute upon you, Israel, just as there is no other being in creation who is like Elohim. There is no other nation on earth like you, Israel. And it's because of his help, it's because of his majesty, it's because of his salvation, it's because of his shield, that again, all we have to do is stand on his word and our enemies will cringe before us. They will perceive us as being much mightier than we are without him, because there's no one like him. So we're taking on some of his attributes, right? So let's. Let's run up in here now into these ministers of fire to help clarify from Torah portion, and it's kind of subtle. Sometimes in, in Torah, it's way more subtle when we're looking for something than it is in the prophets or the Psalms or the writings or even the the New Testament. Torah prophecy, I think people overlook Torah as prophecy because it is more subtle. And sometimes it's it's kind of concealed by a story. It, we, might be think we're, we might think we're reading a story, but as it turns out, we're reading prophecy. Or we might think we're reading a speech, but we're reading a prophecy. And so here in Ba'at Hanan, Moses is giving a speech to the Israelites as they're preparing to cross over the Jordan, as they're preparing to begin conquering and take the land of their inheritance. They are these, um, who is this coming up from the wilderness, like the scented powders of the merchant, the 12 tribes now, they've been collected. They're operating in their gifts. They're operating in the diversity of their gifts. And so he's trying to prepare them for what they're about to face. So here's what he says in Deuteronomy 4, 33 and through 35. He says, has any people, remember, who is like you, a Lord among the gods, who is like you, Israel? He's, he's singling out for 
being set apart, being special. He says, has any people heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire as you have heard it and survived? Or has a God tried to go to take for himself a nation from within another nation? That's something we want to file, you know, keep close at hand. Has a God tried to go to take for himself a nation from within another nation? By trials, by signs and wonders, and by war, and by a mighty hand, and by an outstretched arm, and by great terrors, as the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord, he is God. There is no other besides him. That's the attribute of Michael, Michael. That's the, the angel that always points out that there is no one higher. There was no one other than him. None. It's supreme authority and every knee will have to bow and every tongue confess. Even the principalities and powers that have been appointed over the earth, there are none who can prevail over Adonai. So there's a couple of clues here, uh, more than one clue. But this is helping us to understand how these princes over principalities and kingdoms work. That remember, they will rule over a particular territory. They're not just out there doing random things. If you encounter something that appears to be doing random things, it, it may not be under heavenly authority, <laughs> uh, but you need to appeal to the creator. You need to talk to the one who created the being. You need to pray. But these beings, they rule over a particular territory, whether we're calling them Sarim, um, Elohim with the small e, not Elohim, the creator, uh, Malakim. Angels, whatever we're calling them, whatever the context in, in Hebrew and scripture, they're assigned a particular territory. They're not just roaming the earth. <laughs> uh, you know, it's even if they are on patrol, it's because they have been assigned a particular territory. Yet there is something that they don't do. Because remember, angels are single minded. They typically get one task. They get one thing to do. Uh, you, you don't encounter a lot of angels that have a name 12 syllables long. Um, they usually have one attribute, one thing to do. Should they complete that task? Are they given a new name and a new task? I don't know that. All right. That, that's way beyond <laughs> You know, the realm of my understanding, but this is the pattern in scripture. They do one thing at a time. You, you, because they control a particular territory, that's their assigned job. They're not con concerned with anybody else's. They're not busybodies. They're not jumping into other people's business. Typically, um, if they're obedient, they're taking care of their own job. So one thing they would, we would not expect one of these princes to do is to try to extract a people who are within another principality. That, that's not really on their mission statement. To take an entire people, a whole people, can they get fragments out of another principality? Possibly through military conquest. Let's say you don't completely conquer the territory. Could you get a remnant? Could you get a representative number of people? raid it, and then take it to another place. You could, but typically when you have a whole regime change, especially as we're talking about the four beast kingdoms, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, the more common way of, of regime change is it flips overnight, and it's just that this people becomes that people that fast. But he's saying, I have done something very unique because it's not, it's not part of the job of an appointed prince over a principality to go in and take an entire people from within another one and take it out of there. 
because the pattern is when there's a change of kingdom, when there's a change of regime, he sets the one down and he lifts up the other. This is how the beast kingdoms changed. He took one down and he sets up another. This is why the prince of Persia, I believe, was so resistant to Gabriel getting through with the message to Daniel because he's going to prophesy the end of that, that the, the prevalence of that kingdom. The, the, the Persian empire does not want to fall to Greece. So he would prefer that the message not go out because once the prophecy is made, then people can read the prophecy and they can see it's possible. Sometimes people won't try something just because they think it's impossible. But if it's say, hey, let's go to this book of Daniel. This is a this is one of those Hebrew prophecies. Let's look it up. And let's say Alexander the Great hears about it. And he says, well, you know, these people over here have prophets and, and they're saying that, hey, we're going to conquer the, the Persians. Let's wage a war. It's an inspiration. So no, the Prince of Persia would not want that message to get through. But then when he is reminded, you're not the ultimate authority, that if the Holy One has decreed that Persia's coming down and then Greece is going to arise, that's what's going to happen. The message is going to go out. You know, it will hit the evening news, Prince of Persia. So you're going to have to step aside when Michael comes with that message. And so, yeah, people groups might mingle, you know, once one conquers the other. But this is said right here to be very unusual that there would be a whole people group completely protected within Egypt. In fact, they've developed their identity further from the 70 that went down into Egypt at the time of the plague. Now there are 12 tribes, even uh, Ephraim and Menashe have been perpetuated as Hebrews, not as Egyptians. So they have pre preserved their peoplehood, even though I'm sure they were a little more privileged uh, based on you know who they were descended from. Nevertheless, they have a total Hebrew identity a total Israelite identity. And so he, he is able to kind of birth this nation in a day when he takes the entire nation out of Egypt at one time. It defies the rules, in other, other words. The only one that would be able to defy this rule successfully and pull it off would be the creator himself, who is like El. And this is the song they sing at the Reed Sea, who is like you, O Lord among the gods. Right. Let's look at Deuteronomy 4.19 and then skip down to Deuteronomy 4.39. Right. And, and you can see how what this really, as we're looking at it in context, doesn't seem to have a whole lot to do with understanding the, the angelic majesties, the princes and principalities. But there is enough of a hint here that I think it provides a guideline for us. And, and then it'll kind of help explain where you know, the tradition comes that um, the sun, the moon, and the stars are representative of the principalities that are assigned to these princes. The problem is, very quickly, this divine order of things fell into idolatry and astrology. It became disrupted, it became twisted, and all of a sudden, human beings began worshiping the, the entity over the territory, the entity represented by the physical body, such as the sun, the moon, or the stars, began worshiping them because they do have some power, but remember, it's appropriated power. They don't want to be worshiped. If they're obedient, they don't want to be worshiped. And you see angels resisting that when they appear to human beings. They don't want to be worshiped. They're created beings. But here's what Moses says in Deuteronomy 4.19. He says, beware not to lift up your eyes to the heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the host of heaven and be drawn away and worship them and serve them, those which the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. And then in Deuteronomy 4.39, he says, Know therefore today and take it to your heart that the Lord, he is God in heaven above and on earth below. There is none other. So the hint here, once you kind of understand that the sun, the moon, and the stars, these heavenly bodies, and even the, the, the idolaters named their gods and goddesses after these heavenly bodies, you know, like the Apollos and the, what's her name, Artemis and, and the, the constellations of the stars, you know, they would, because there is a particular prince 
over principality represented by these heavenly bodies, then rather than worship the one who made them and say, it's not our business to try to manipulate them. Instead, they began to try to manipulate them. They began to pray to specific ones. They began to try to read astrological signs and see the strengths that had been assigned to each of these, and it became completely corrupted. And now they're trying to manipulate these things rather than obey and worship the one who created them. And, and so it's it's not as if they're completely off. They at least understand that there is power emanating from these, these heavenly angels. They are given jobs and they do have the power to perform those jobs. Otherwise, the Prince of Persia would not be so strong. He would have to be double teamed, so to speak. The, the sin enters in right here, like Moses is telling the people in Deuteronomy, don't look either to the physical object or to the, the princes or angelic majesties that they represent. Don't go serve them because you think, well, this particular God is over this particular thing, and I need this particular thing that he is over. So I'll go talk to him rather than go to the Holy One who might tell me, you don't need that. You don't need to do that. No. And so they're trying to manipulate the powers of those uh, princes over the principalities. And he's and God, he says, Moses says, yes, they are allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. They are there for your benefit. They have been assigned these principalities. The understanding, though, too, is why would you need them? If Israel had done their job, if mankind had done their job, would you need all these principalities and powers to try to manage the kingdoms and the nations? The original idea is for the 12 tribes of Israel to set up judgment at the 12 gates of Jerusalem, and from there the nations go up for judgment. From there, the nations go up for judgment. But when Israel falls down on the job, then you can see why there might be an additional need to appoint these princes over principalities, to look after the welfare of the nations, because clearly Israel has abdicated their responsibility to do that. And so in uh, verse 39, Moses follows up and he reminds us, He's God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is none other. So whether you're looking at an angelic majesty from the heavenlies or even a domain that, that an angelic majesty might have on the earth, understand they are only created entities. They are under authority. And it's foolish and rebellious for us to turn to the entity rather than turn to the one who created the entity, obey him. If we obey him, then in turn, it's this angelic majesty's responsibility to take care of us. That's their assigned portion. That's what they're assigned to do. And I don't want to get into head covers because, you know, clearly it, it would take a whole day <laughs> to talk about. But I think it is this, this aspect of that, that when Paul talks to the Corinthians, he talks about having a sign of authority on your head. Now, he, when he says it's a shame for a man, to have his head covered, he's talking about something hanging down from a man's head like a woman would wear. He's not supposed to wear a woman's apparel, but it is not a shame for a man to minister and pray with that sign of authority on his head, just like the priests in the temple. They did not go into the temple bareheaded. They're showing that they're under authority. So he says it's the same way when women prophesy or pray in public that she should have a sign of authority on her head because of the angels. Because if angels are given dominion over certain things, then what does the angel do? He looks down and he looks for obedience because he is one under authority. He's also looking for those who are submitting to authority. Not that you submit to the angel. That's not the test. Do you submit to the Holy One so that the angel can see that you're a person under spiritual authority? That's just a basic understanding. So, each nation or people group is allotted a prince. And remember that is Sar in Hebrew. They might be a, go by other names, like we say, Malach. It might be a, an angel. There's other names for them, in fact. You know, there's a whole list that you could put together of what these, these spiritual majesties are called. So the thing to remember, the sun, the moon, and the stars sometimes represent 
these rulers, but they are not to be worshipped. They're just appointed rulers. Their job is to look after the interests of their assigned territories. So as we're, we're going through the footsteps of Messiah preparing for the end of the exile, we might perceive around us battles taking place in the heavenlies. Now, what does a battle in the heavenlies look like? Are they literally putting on boxing gloves and hitting one another and kicking one another and wrestling? And, you know, (laughs) no, that's not how they do things. They're not physical entities. They're spiritual entities. So how does a spiritual battle take place? I would think primarily through the word, through the word of Elohim. Because that is what's emphasized over and over and over, the sword of the word in scripture. Uh, He is our salvation. He is our shield and so forth. But the sword of the word is from basically Genesis, leaving the garden, all the way to Revelation, where Yeshua comes with the sword of the word. So how do you do a battle with an angel? Like in the case of Jacob, it's don't wrestle an angel. You wouldn't win anyway. You stand firm on the words. That's how you do battle with a spiritual entity. You stand firm on the word and you don't move. It's not by being aggressive. It's not by being loud. It's it's not by bluffing that you have authority that you're not really sure you do have after all, right? It's it's not by saying the right combination of words. Uh, There's no secret charms. No, you just stand on the word that you know, and that's how you do battle. But during the the footsteps of Messiah, or what we would call the the tribulation, you can see that everything in the heavens is being shaken. These principalities and powers, they're being shaken in the heavenly. Because remember, each of these princes has an interest. It has a domain. It has a territory. And so if everything is being leveled on earth, if all measures are about to be made equal— which is what they say is going to characterize the footsteps of Messiah. That's like everything's going to be leveled. You read that in the, the Haftorah portion today, how you know the, the hills, the mountains are going to be leveled out. The valleys are going to be brought up. Everything is going to be equal, level. Big nations are going to be brought here. Little nations will be brought up here. There are no bigger little nations. Everything is one plane. It's one even playing field, we might say. So as everything's being shaken up, or right now some are stronger than others, this interest is conflicting with this interest, we're going to see an intensification of battle as these interests start clashing together. I think it's they're already clashing big time. And so as physical people on earth, we're probably going to feel these spiritual battles in the heavenlies because it's, there's going to be a chaos in those assigned places in the spiritual realm, there's bound to be chaos in the physical realm. And I think we're already feeling that. And it's not a comfortable feeling when we feel like there's spiritual things out there and we know something's happening. We just don't, we can't see it. So we don't know exactly, but we can know because scripture's telling us right here, pretty much what's happening. Revelation 6, 12 through 17 describes how this works. And, and it's described in the sixth seal. He says, I looked when he broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. Remember, the sun can represent, the physical sun can represent an angelic majesty who has a domain. The sun became black as sackcloth made of hair and the whole moon, another heavenly body appointed as uh, a prince over principality. And so remember, what does he say? Um, The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. What does that mean? I've always thought that was a strange sounding scripture. But if you understand the princes and principalities, then there is an entity, there's an angelic majesty who rules over the day. And there's one who rules over the night. And so as long as you're walking in obedience to the word, whatever angelic majesty might be watching over your day, his job is not to harm you. And the same thing by the moon by night. If you're walking in obedience, if you're coming up out of the wilderness, like the prophecies describing the scented powders of the merchants, you've been refined in the wilderness. The moon's not going to harm you by night. That's not its job. In fact, its job is to take care of you. I said, because of the angels. Show yourself as one under authority because of the angels. And it says, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth. So each of these constellations can represent a particular angelic majesty that has a domain. He's looking over some interest on the earth. So it says these stars of the sky. Now, remember the stars of the sky, they can also represent the children of Abraham. So it's like a a dual purpose prophecy right here. 
the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when they're shaken by a great wind. Remember the angels of the four winds. Those are princes over principalities. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Now, a mountain can represent a nation. So you can see that the result of these angelic majesties undergoing this transformation is resulting in a shakeup of the power structures of every nation on earth. Things are being moved out of their places. Remember, the mountains have to be brought down and the valleys have to be brought up. It says, then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand, right? The kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong, you can see that these would be the people who were kind of working under the favor of their assigned prince. But now all these princes in the heavenlies, it's like they have begun battling against one another at this this last stage because the ones who are high, the high mountains, they don't want to be brought down. Just like the prince of Persia, he didn't want to be brought down and replaced by Greece. So there have to be battles like Gabriel and Michael fought with the prince of Persia in order to tear down the big nations and to to build up the valley nations. And so who's going to feel that that burn the worst at first? Well, it's going to be the kings of the earth who realize they're losing their domain. It's going to be the commanders, the rich and the strong. The commanders of the armies, they're going to lose their armies. The rich are going to lose their riches. The strong are going to lose their strength. And it goes all the way down to the slave and every free man, every human being. And that domain is going to feel the burn if they are disobedient. And they're going to say, hide us, but there's not going to be any place to hide because the wrath of the lamb has come and you just can't stand in front of it, right? If he has decreed that you be brought down, you will be brought down. If he has decreed that you be raised up, you will be raised up, no matter what's going on in terms of the heavenly battles. Well, this is all working itself out. Mark 13, 24, Yeshua describes it. In those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken, right? Big battle, big adjustment, big power and authority adjustment. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Remember the clouds, the the clouds of glory? that the Israelites walked in, the Sukkot of glory, they were said brought from the throne itself. And then he will send forth the angels. These are other angels. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. See how he's doing it again? He says, has ever a God taken a whole people out from another nation intact? And now he said, this is bigger. Now I'm going to send my angels out and I'm going to put all my people intact from the nations where I've scattered them. And they will be one people. He says, so learn the parable from the fig tree when its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves. You know that summer is near. This is from the Haftorah this week from Ba'echanan, Isaiah 40, 25. It says, to whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. This goes back to the attribute of Michael, the angel Michael, who is like El, its supreme authority. To whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal? says the Holy One, lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number, he who calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. So I hope you hear this beautiful language. You know, if we're talking about Michael, who are you going to compare me to, he asks. The strength and the power of his might, Gabriel. When Michael and Gabriel team up, (laughs) you know, these are the guys you want on your team. So not only is he straightening out the power structures of the stars, the principalities and powers of the heavenlies, in order to uh, submit them to the kingship of Messiah, Yeshua, he's also straightening out 
the physical descendants of Abraham. Remember, he who created these stars. Abraham was told, Abraham, count the stars if you're able, so shall the number of your seed be. He leads forth their host by number. They were led out of Egypt by number. He calls them by name. Remember, Genesis, Exodus, Shemot, names. He led the host out by numbering them in the census and then calling them all by name, by tribe, by clan, house of Jacob, house of Israel, the Hebrews. He calls them according to their purpose. Your name is your purpose. And he does this because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. So there's the literal stars in the sky. They're the angelic majesties represented by these stars who are going to be shaken up in order to lead forth his people and set up the kingdom of Messiah on earth. And then there are the children of Abraham, these other stars. They're stars and stars and stars. And so once you understand how deep a prophecy, how many deep layers you can find in prophecy, this is inspiring. But I think it also helps us to kind of straighten out where did idolatry come into play? Why did it come into play? What is our job? We can look up at the stars and be inspired and say, you know what? When I'm under the authority of the Holy One, those that he has set in authority in these, these heavenly places, their job is to look after me on his behalf. And it's my job to work under his authority and, and to recognize there's none beside him. There's no one who is his equal. And it's because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power that I will not be missing when we go up from the wilderness, like those scented powders of the merchant. Baruch Hashem, is that not the most wonderful good news? Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.